What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. This has become one of my favorite local hangs because they have free music every Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sunday afternoons 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. They are located in inner southeast Portland and not only do they offer free music on their their large patio setup, but they've also got a killer brunch menu from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. The French toast and the breakfast sandwich are lights out. And I can't really do much alcohol personally, but I love their Virgin Bloody Marys. And they've got some other mocktails for folks like me as well. And they're always rotating in new seasonal cocktails. So come through and check out what they've got on deck for fall and winter down there. The patio is now nice, covered, and heated and will be throughout the fall and winter. So come through and big thanks to Produce Row for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking like, follow, subscribe, giving the podcast five stars, a little review there on the iTunes, and that is super helpful in propelling this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts to uh, get new ears on it, help strangers find the show, and just a great way to contribute to the growth and sustainability of this thing. You can share the podcast word of mouth if you're uh, if you're feeling inclined to do so. That's always super helpful, maybe the most helpful thing to do. But appreciate all of uh, the people that have already taken the time to leave those reviews. 
and I've been putting out some monthly Spotify playlists every first of the month with some tunes that I've been listening to. So uh, those are coming at you monthly and that March one is up there and the April one is to come next week. So uh, looking forward to dropping that. The Spotify profile will be in the episode notes. And there's also a bunch of genre-specific playlists up there. And I just recently put out a Portland playlist, which is just a bunch of Portland artists that I really dig. And a lot of them that have been on the podcast over the last six years. So that one is there as well. But let's get into this one as quickly as possible. Episode 301 of the podcast fucking Pete Yorn is on the show this week very cool very wild and uh yeah just a great chat with this dude this conversation made me really excited about life and I remember feeling that amidst the conversation and I felt it again when I was going back listening back putting this thing together so Pete's energy was just very infectious and it was cool to see how excited he seemed to share these stories and experiences of his life and his career and I just got so much out of this conversation I feel like I could have talked with Pete for hours but uh, he was so generous with his time and we talked for almost an hour and a half and I hope I have the opportunity to, to chat with him again in the future I'm really excited about his upcoming album that will drop around late spring early summer it sounds like so stay tuned for that if you're new to the podcast and you tuned in because you are a fan of pete i hope you enjoy this chat as much as i did and yeah this one just made me really stoked and grateful for the opportunity to chat with him he couldn't have been a sweeter dude pete mentions the the michigander episode of the podcast towards the end of the conversation and if you don't know that band and you dig Pete Yorn, you should definitely check out the Michigander music and that episode of the cast as well. One of my favorite chats from last year. And if you want to see some free live music in the Portland, Oregon area, swing through Produce Row Cafe on a Thursday night. Free tunes there, 6 to 8 p.m. Every first Thursday is with the Jeff Chilton Trio, a staff favorite down there. And uh, we've also got some brunch DJ sets going on Sundays, noon to two. And then starting in April, those Sunday DJ sessions will be in the evening from five to seven. So all the links for the sponsors will be in the episode notes and the calendars for those places as well are linked. And I'm recording this intro a few days earlier than normal because I'm heading out to Boise, Idaho tomorrow for the Tree Fort Music Festival. Looking forward to bringing back a bunch of interviews from there. That was a big highlight of last year for me was hitting that festival, so I'm stoked to get back out there. So hopefully the world has not exploded in the days leading up to this, but thank you to everyone that took the time to check out episode 300, which was just me very long-windedly taking some time to reflect on 300 episodes of the podcast and just talk about how my life has changed since moving to Portland, Oregon in 2013 and starting this podcast and just how much it has kind of shifted my life path, but also, uh, speaking about, but also speaking about some, some folks that have influenced me on the way or, uh, had a big impact and, uh, just appreciate the continued support 
for this, I'm really excited to share this conversation with Pete and kick off the, the 300 era with one of my favorite chats that I've had throughout the course of doing this thing and just an incredible songwriter and musician. Pete, you're going to kick off episode 301 with one of my favorite tunes off of uh, Pete Yorn's 2019 Caretakers album. And this record and the music Pete is making right now is definitely something we touch on in this chat and his collaboration specifically with Jackson Phillips, who has that amazing project Daywave and produced the Caretakers record and a lot of the upcoming music that you're going to hear from Pete Yorn. So this is one of my favorites off that Caretakers album. It's called Can't Stop You. Let's do the damn thing. Awesome. Uh, super stoked to talk to you, Pete. I I think it was probably around 2009, 2010 that I got hip to your music. I was I was very late to your uh, your first record, uh, Music for the Morning After. But um, when I found that one, I feel like that was right around the time that you know, like Pandora music was becoming a bigger thing. And uh, it was kind of like my entry point, I feel like, into a lot of the singer-songwriter stuff when I found uh, some tunes off that record and would kind of like use that as a radio station to send me into this area of singer-songwriters that I didn't really uh, know about beforehand. Um, so I've been following what you've been doing for, I don't know, 10 years or so now and uh, have always really enjoyed your, your records and your songwriting. So I'm pumped to to find out where uh some of this comes from man excellent well thanks thanks so much yeah you sound like you got you made about a mid middle entry into my career yeah but but you started with the first record so that's good to play good place to start you know just uh, at the beginning yeah but uh yeah that one came out like i think i finished that one in 1999 and it didn't come out till 2001 so you know, 2010, right in the middle there of where we're up to. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about what your uh, what your life was like before you made music for the morning after and uh, growing up in the, the New Jersey area. Yeah, um, I grew up in a small suburban town called Montville, New Jersey. That's in Morris County, about, about 40 minutes due east of the Lincoln Tunnel, New York City. And... Uh, I was pretty sheltered. I had older brothers who were like my middle brothers, six years older than me. And my oldest brother is nine years older than me. So like they, 
influenced me a lot you know just in my household like the music they were playing and what the, they turned me on to everything and they always let me hang around even when i was like too little to be hanging around like awesome. they'd have parties and i'd be like seven <laughs> years old just witnessing stuff i probably shouldn't be witnessing and they were like pd you got a pd you know it was always fun um so that was a good education and in, in my you know my parents are kind of you know they were you know they were like pre late 60s you know sexual revolution they were more like kids of the 50s i'd say so they were you know they were more kind of uh uh conservative and and what they were listening to but at the same time my dad was into pretty cool stuff he was into like he loved bossa nova and brazilian music and i remember hearing that stuff around my house and liking it a lot nice like you know whether it was like Astrid gilberto or like the gets gilberto album yeah. or like uh uh Jobim, like you know and i i, I really in brazil 66 i remember being like wow this is cool at a young age and my mom was into like the carpenters of manilow and and would play that in the car all the time i remember as a very little kid hearing that stuff and and, and liking it uh appreciating it even more now um but my brothers were everything as far as like getting me into music just naturally you know like at first i remember my earliest memories are kind of like like maiden and priest like they were like into you know kind of that british metal you know in like 1981 82 83 and i as a little kid i think the first time i ever even remember hearing it was them playing it live in my basement because they would have friends from the neighborhood come over my brother had a drum set my other really? my oldest brother would be like the singer and then they have other like kind of burnouts from our town, come over, <laughs> ripped jeans, stinking as you know, smoking cigarettes, and 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 they just they'd bring like you know Marshall stacks down into my basement, <laughs> and my parents were just kind of cool with it. They never said nothing really, and they just awesome. be cranking stuff. And I remember the first time I ever heard "Breaking the Law" was them playing it live in my basement, and <laughs> not a bad version of it either. You know, like and and I remember thinking the drums were so cool. How there's that little pause before the chorus it's like it's like boom 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 breaking the law breaking the law and i remember as a kid being like whoa i, I want to be able to i could do that like i remember thinking like uh, i could i could just do that in my head I, I remember being like a little you know a little shit kid you know seven years old six years old i don't know how old i was but um Maybe I was, maybe I was eight. I don't even fucking know. But the bottom line was they like leave the room and I would just get on behind the drums and start messing around. And they were never like, get out of here. So, <laughs> you know, seeing that stuff in my house was very influential. Uh, and I think I, I, when I trace it back now, knowing what I know, I'm like, I think, you know, I had the music in me. Like I, I, I always could hear it and kind of came sort of easy to be able to play. But like having my brothers around it, showing me that stuff like just right in my home was a big deal i think yeah you know? and so. they were they were letting you know that that was cool so i'm assuming like the better you got it at music they thought that was also very cool that as you progressed as a a musician oh yeah they were like my biggest fans i remember there's a story my my middle brother always likes to tell that they left the jam room like to to go get some food and they hear someone downstairs playing dance the night away like by van halen like perfect on the drums and i always remember it was like and i remember that i remember that it had this very precise little fill at the beginning and uh 
and they come walking down thinking it was like one of the other other friends and it was they're like there's little it was little Petey sitting on a pillow behind the behind the <laughs> behind the, on the drum throne and you know they were always so psyched and always very supportive and and a huge part of probably why I you know had the the you know the chutzpah to try and make it in the music business you know even though at a young age I always thought I was going to you know be like a lawyer or a dentist or something my dad was a dentist and i i never thought i would do music as a career i was like it seemed like such a pipe dream you know but then like halfway through college i remember thinking well i'm writing all these songs i kept writing song after song in syracuse new york it was snowing every day all i do is smoke weed it was just just i don't even know how i made it through <laughs> but i was just writing and writing and writing sometimes like four songs a day and I remember by middle of junior year, I was like, all right, I got to finish school because my grandpa will kill me if I don't. And my dad's really working hard to send me here. But I knew that after, as soon as I graduated, that I would go and follow my my brothers and some friends out to California and try and take a shot at music. And I figured if it didn't work out, I'd go to law school. That was my fallback. Um, and that could have been cool, too. I don't know. But luckily, you know, things started happening with music. And here we are. Yeah, was it pretty quick that you got into exploring other instruments after you kind of got the drums under you a bit? I think that the um, I used to have a lot of fun like putting on headphones and playing to other records. I remember for early on, like I used to love playing to like you know, like the Judas Priest records and and the Maiden records, um, uh, and and then at some point my middle brother when he was in high school things started to change what he was listening to and they started playing different kind of songs all of a sudden they were like oh we're gonna learn a song by the jam we're gonna learn a song by the clash we're gonna do a u2 song you know and all of a sudden i was like huh these these songs are speaking to me in a different way like the early metal stuff like i love i loved it so it was just it was just fun and but i you know and the lyrics they, they didn't affect me on the way well they they affected me but just in a, a innocent way i think once i started to hit puberty which I actually hit at a very young age that's a different story but but i think you know you get to that age where you're feeling something inside and you want to dress a certain way and and cut your hair a certain way and like you know bands like the cure and the smiths show up and they're saying things that like you've been feeling I was like, well, I think I need to learn guitar because I can't, I want, I don't, I want to express this stuff. I want, I feel like I want to write songs mm -hmm. naturally. And so in piano, like I was never good enough at piano. I mean, I could, I could play what I heard really, but I never learned to read music and I still don't know how to read music. Um, buy, although my mom tried to get me lessons when I was little, but I was too hyper. I was like, I just couldn't do it anyone's way, you know? Um, so yeah, things changed, uh, which made me want to learn guitar when I kind of got into different bands. REM was another one that like, when I started hearing these guitar riffs, I was like into that. And, and uh, the first song I ever wrote, I remember it was called The One and it was me basically trying to write a Cure song. It was like, it's me just trying to write a song that sounded like that. Um, and that was probably when I was like, I had to have been 12 or 13, maybe 13 when I learned guitar. And uh, it's funny because I've told this story before, but my 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 public school in Jersey, uh, seventh grade, 
they had music class and it was guitar class. There was, they, they had these cabinets, huge cab cubbies in the whole class. And there were like 20 nylon string acoustic guitars. And basically the whole semester was to learn how to play guitar. And I didn't apply myself at all. And looking back, the teacher was cool. She was like a deadhead. And at the time I didn't appreciate the dead. I was like, what, you know, I don't the dead. what is this? You know? And uh, I love the dead, you know, now, but, but like, like I remember just like playing bass lines. I was like, Oh, I could play like, you know, blister in the sun, my violent femmes or like, you know, uh, you know, uh, smoke on the water or whatever. I would just, that's all I do. And I would never learn how to play the chords or learn how to read the music. So I got a D in guitar class, seventh grade that summer. I went to some summer camp in upstate New York and there were all these British counselors. It was very common to have like counselors who came over from England to work for half the summer there. And then they would travel around America and check it out. And, uh, I remember a couple of them were really into the Smiths and a lot of the Brit Brit music that I ended up loving and one was playing guitar and he showed me some chords and then that's, that's where I really learned to play. So if I, and then when I came back, like at the, ultimately that seventh grade class, really all you learned was like the first position chords. If I would have gone and took that class for first semester of eighth grade, I would have got an A because I knew, I, I knew them all, <laughs> but yeah, I got a D in seventh grade music. So I, didn't, so I didn't apply myself, but I still don't apply myself enough. I'm, I'm, I'm inherently lazy, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems to uh, have worked for 20 plus years now, Pete. So you got to be doing something right. Maybe that, maybe since you don't apply yourself in that way, it just keeps the songwriting simple and what people want to hear. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I mean, you know, I, of course I bust my chops. I'm, I'm very, I'm very domesticated and I'm, I'm, I'm not lazy in my house. I'm always washing dishes, doing laundry nonstop. Like, you know, making sure everything's clean, all that <laughs> stuff. I love, I love keeping up on that, keeping my, keeping my stuff tight. But, you know, as far as like really certain things, if I have to really apply myself, if, if I, if I lose interest, it's forget about it, you know? Yeah. So, so when you f started writing your first tunes, did, were you getting that feeling that you thought you were attracted to as far as, you know, expressing something on a deeper level? Um, expressing your emotions in this way maybe you hadn't before yeah like in hindsight i don't know how much thought i was giving it at the time it was just a it was more of like a natural pull towards that stuff um that i was just, it wasn't like oh now i have to write songs and i want to be the best song it was more like i i feel like i kind of could do that and so i'm gonna do it and uh you know learning guitar i remember like the pinky like learning like my hands aren't you know, huge or not small, but they're like medium. But I remember like as a little kid, you know, when you're playing like a G chord, that pinky on the high E string would just kill. I remember like, oh, but I would sit like friends would ask me, like I had friends who were trying to learn guitar and they'd be like, how often do you practice? And I'd be like, practice. I don't practice. I just like sit in front of the TV and like strum and like while I'm watching TV, like it was more like some like natural extension. I never thought of it as anything. And maybe that's why I liked it. Cause that was, it was just on my terms and it wasn't supposed to be anything other than a hobby, I guess, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was just kind of having fun with it, but, um, you know, one thing that was a big catalyst, I remember like I played basketball, you know, seventh grade, I was always a little, little taller once like once i hit like seventh grade and so i played basketball seventh grade eighth grade ninth grade tenth grade eleventh grade and then senior year 
our, our coach that had been coaching us for a long time got fired or something. They got a new coach. And so they held new tryouts and the new coach came from, not from my town. He didn't know me and he apparently didn't like me very much. And <laughs> I didn't make the team. I was, couldn't believe it. I remember there's a list there and I get cut from the, from the, the, the varsity basketball team after playing every year. And I remember being like, at first I was like really offended by that. I was like, what the fuck and then i was like all right all right and then i remember my head went to write to you all right fucker i'm gonna start a fucking band <laughs> and that's what i'm gonna there's a reason for this shit i'm gonna fucking and the team ended up going like one in 19 they like it was the worst season ever <laughs> and i started a band and that changed you know everything of course it was still a hobby but me starting a band and getting getting more serious about that because i had all the time to do that and i also had a chip on my shoulder um you know that was a big deal and a big like looking back at my life that was a life-changing moment you know yeah it's strange how uh little things like that just send you in a completely different direction this thing that you like were just super angry about and probably didn't see quite as that significant in that moment but you know puts you deeper into like what you actually wanted to be doing i guess yeah it was like the universe correcting itself and in some crazy way and sending me to where i needed to be uh, cause other, I wasn't like, I was going to be like Ronnie cycling, like starting center at Syracuse, you know, something like that. As I was like, you know, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't that good anyway. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, I remember just being pissed off and it gave me like fuel to, to start a band. And then we won the talent show and I was, felt, I felt very cool. I was very happy. Hell it yeah. was cool. Hell yeah. yeah. So when you were writing those tunes in Syracuse and, uh, that you were feeling pretty good about, did you have other friends around you that were uh doing the music thing that like made you feel like it could be a tangible thing like when does it when do you kind of get out of your head that maybe you don't just want to be like a dentist or a lawyer and that you do want to pursue music maybe more seriously or i guess as a, a career path yeah um you know like i was saying it's probably like middle of junior year where i realized like in my head i was like well i could always go I had to graduate. I knew that, but I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm writing all these songs. I might as well give it a shot now because I could always go to law school. I'd rather, what do you, I don't want to be, be go, go to law school, become a lawyer, even if that worked out and then be like, I remember in my head thinking, I don't want to be 30 and change my mind. Like what I missed out or, you know, I figure, well, let's, let's give it a shot now while you can, you know? And, and I gotta be honest, like all my friends, like the right away, like, I wasn't really so much like someone who was like, oh, listen to my songs. I'm going to go to your room with my guitar, check out my songs. Like, I was really shy about that. And like, I don't even know how, but like people, people just right away would gravitate to my room if they heard me playing. Uh, but I was kind of being sneaky about it. And, but then I don't know. And, and the way I remember it is all, all my friends right away that I met, we're just really like, dude, these two, these are cool tunes, man. You got to play more, play. And they'd be like, Pete, play for, play that song for that person, play that song for her. So people were always asking me to play a song for somebody. And I'd be like, all right, whatever, you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't using it to like be cool or that thing. It wasn't like that. It was just like, you know, everyone was just supportive and my brothers were supportive. And when my parents, when it came down to it, to like, to say, he's going to try to do music, you know, before law school, they were scared, you know, as parents would be, yeah. and I, I don't blame them. And uh, my, it took my brothers to like get in their face and go, no, you don't understand. 
he's good and he he, he could do something you know we don't know what but he, he deserves the shot and they had my back and they helped me i slept on their couches for years you know like but you know they 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 you know i'm very grateful and i don't I don't shy away from the fact that I was very lucky. I was able to, you know, crash out my brother's places and have they that freed me up to focus on 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 my writing and all that stuff, you know, as I was getting closer to getting signed to Columbia. So Yeah. So was there quite a bit of gigging that happened in between that that time of uh getting the opportunity to make music for the morning after? Yeah. Like in college I was just a drummer. I kind of like I, I didn't really play out. I maybe I played out as a as a guitar singer like twice, once at a coffee shop later, like maybe senior year, and once at a at a charity talent show event that this um this girl from a sorority was they were putting on a like a sorority show and this girl asked me, she had seen me playing around like just through my friends and stuff and was like, Will you I sponsor you to be you know, in this contest. And I won that contest. I remember with a song called someday that ended up where it's like this loud, this was a big moment too. Like if you're like making the movie of my life, if I look back, this was an, another thing that kind of was like, huh, maybe I could do this. Like they, I go, she, she, she asked me like a few hours before if I come to this, this bar called the, the, uh, the orange cafe is like a big popular like pub college all college kids uh in on in syracuse on off the main campus and i'm like okay but i was scared and i just had this one shitty acoustic guitar that i still have in the other room and it was actually my mom's uh from when she was like she she you know barely knew how to play but she had it from the 60s and uh i go there and there's like comedians there's like kids rapping there's like i don't even remember what the hell was going on but it was still like the loudest everyone just wasted talking so loud over everything and finally like all right we're gonna bring up this guy pete and they hold they they only had one microphone so i sit there and they held up the microphone like half between my voice and half between the guitar hole the sound hole and i just play this most quiet song called someday which is the last song on breakup that i did with scarlet years later and that was like a real heartbreak. So I remember I've written that song about my first love we, when we broke up and I was like, well, it was like, I really was like an emotional song to me, but I sang it and the place got whisper quiet. I mean, from being super ra raucous and loud. And uh, I finished the song and I remember the place just went, ha ha, like they went <laughs> crazy. And and it was like a scene in a movie. It was like, and then, and I, and I won, and I won the whole, the whole competition. And I remember being like, wow, I was like kind of blown away. I was kind of really um, proud of myself because I was really shy about it normally. But on the other hand, looking back, like I said, that was one of those moments. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe I can do this. So it must have been, it must have been that right about that time, middle junior year, you know, where I started to be like, yeah, all right, maybe I just give it a shot. So that was another thing that started driving me there. Lost for is a state of mind where I can keep myself in line with all the changes and all that stays the same. I think I'll leave the past behind.
other than that, I was gigging as a drummer uh, for a band called Andy Set 15 that was fronted by this kid, Joe Kennedy, who ended up being in my touring band for years, like Joey K, who played keyboards and guitars, the secret weapon, we call him. He played everything. Uh, he was in my band from like 2001 till uh he's i think he's back in the band again he wasn't on the last cycle but uh yeah he was he's he's been with me for a long time on and off yeah um and so it's great to be able to play with him uh still but but yeah i was just drumming we were playing covers like uh i remember we'd play like positive bleeding uh by urge overkill i remember that we'd play like um some some pixie songs some posy songs uh some of his originals he had some cool songs um but i was just happy being the drummer you know in the background and uh yeah that changed once i graduated moved out to california i put the, a band together with uh right when i moved to california i was like all right now i'm gonna get serious i'm gonna try and get signed and i remember moving out thinking you know having some that youthful uh, naive confidence, you know, of that, that oh, I'm going to get a record deal yeah. right away, you know? Um, and I, my brother, my middle brother was a drummer and my buddy from college, this guy was, was the bass player. And we were a three piece and we played out a bunch and we actually were offered a deal by MCA once, uh, early on, but it was like a bad deal. Every people advised me not to do it. It didn't look good on paper and so i was like all right you know what the other opportunities whatever and so we blew it off and then i was just kind of honing my skills you know when i was playing out i played out probably like i moved out in 96 may may like may 16th 96 i remember the day and uh i was playing around for maybe 96 97 about two years i think and we weren't, we weren't getting much buzz, you know, it was like, I think I was still developing the craft. I was right. I was developing as a songwriter. I was getting into guided by voices. I was getting into some other bands that would heavily influence me and add to, you know, the influences that I already had. And, uh, I was also getting better. Like I was starting to record myself a little bit on my four track and getting better at creating sort of the, the soundscapes I wanted to create. And, um, I think at some point I was playing around. At, I got I got introduced to this guy Flanagan who ran, ran runs a club called Largo, um, yeah. and uh, and also was a Syracuse friend Adam Cohen who's the son of Leonard Cohen. He was my good friend at school. He gave Flanagan from Largo like my early demos. He was like he's like check this out. It's my friend Pete. Maybe one of them. And Flanagan got it right away, and he gave me a night to play at Largo. And I remember at that time, it was like, it was like you walk in there and it was like Elliot Smith, Amy Mann, um, like really cool scene of singer songwriters. And it would be, you could hear a pin drop and be just silent there. John Bryan would play every Friday night and put together this crazy show like on the fly. And uh, I remember meeting a lot of interesting people there. And I remember, I think that's where I think just watching a lot of artists there and and feeling the pressure to be good there yeah. kind of helped me up my game, you know? Um, so I did that for like, probably, I don't know, on and off for a couple of years during that time. And I play, I would play there alone. I'd play there with a band. And, uh, at some point I think I decided, um, 
I'm just going to stop playing out live and I'm just going to try and make the greatest album that I could make. And that is, um, that is what ultimately led me to start to make music for the morning after and meeting Walt Vincent, who, um, was the initial producer of that record and did finish it. But before, before the Columbia deal happened, um, we met outside the Troubadour, uh, on Santa Monica Boulevard, uh, after a Sloan concert, I think I bummed a cigarette off him and then we just start talking and how much we love Sloan, the Canadian band <laughs> from Halifax. And, uh, and we, um, he said, yeah, I got a little studio in the Valley, like a, behind, in, a, in the garage, back house. Uh, you should come by, we should lay something down. Uh, and that changed everything meeting him just found we found a new sound you know yeah. and that's what music for the morning after ended up being was like a new sound for me kind of blending so many things i love and other things that i wasn't able to pull off on my on my own just in uh, recording wise uh and yeah it was good times fun times looking back yeah that being like my entry point into you know that scene and your music specifically i think like learning as like getting prepared to talk to you and talking to you now like i feel like all of that spirit of like those bands like sloan and like guided by voices and you know some of like the balancing of like the catchy songwriting with like some of the punk rock feel or like nature to things like seemed to like really be what i was attracted to i think to music for the morning after and just that like opening track to me man is like definitely like one of those like top side one song ones for me and just how how that record opens is like is so memorable I remember, I remember some of the moments recording that. That's the song that got me my record deal. I mean, the, or the one that I will say that took it over the top. You know, uh, I had a, I knew I had a meeting. Columbia had been looking at me a little bit. You know, in '99, I had flown to New York and played some songs for the Head, and they were interested, but they weren't kind of ready to bite yet. And uh, I remember, I knew I had another meeting with uh, uh, one of their main A&R people, this great guy named Will Botwin, who ultimately signed me. Uh, And the day before, as luck would have it, I wrote Life on a Chain. And and at that point they already had, I think they heard demos or like the early early recordings of like Just Another Girl, Murray, uh, Lose You, but I hadn't written Chain yet. And then the day before there was this buddy of mine who lived around the corner no pun intended, but literally lived around the corner from me. And his name's Tony Berg. And he's a great producer um, and and kind of uh, patron of young musicians who were coming up in L.A. at the time. And still he was a guitar player in the like the the, the main band for a Rocky Horror Picture Show. So he's like a sick muso. But he also like he produced like 
like back in like the early 80s. I don't know if it was late 80s or early 90s, like Michael Penn, No Myth, like that was a kind of a hit. I remember um and he had a great studio in his backyard but i remember i went to his house the day before and he just randomly goes pete i want you to go home and write a song with this chord in it and he shows me this weird chord two finger simple chord that i'd never really heard before and i was like yeah okay and uh didn't think much of it and late lo and behold later that night i don't remember too much about it but i did write a song and it was life on a chain and that chord is like the third chord in the song uh and when I meet with Will Botwin, the A&R guy, the next day, you know, the first, he's like, we were watching the Knicks game, I remember, because we were both big Nick, New York Knicks fans at the time. It was a playoff game. And uh, and he goes, he goes, so what, what have you been working on? You got anything new that we haven't heard yet? Like, you know, blatantly. And I was like, well, I wrote this song last night. And uh, literally sitting in front of him, grab my acoustic guitar and play him Life in a Chain. And... Like right away, he, he smiled when it ended, and he's like, "It's like that's a good song, man." He's like, "It's like all right, let's." He goes, "Let's do something. Let's do something." I'm like, "What do you mean?" I'm getting chills right now talking about it because it's like this one of those you know people talk about those moments in your life, you know. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that was a big moment, and uh, and uh, he goes, "Let's make a record. Let's make records." And uh, that was the day, and we, you know, the, I got signed, and. And I wouldn't sign the, the actual paperwork until July 27th, 1999, because I remember it was my birthday. Yeah, that was cool. And then we had a lot of fun after that. We were, you know, I, I, and I had a good head on me at that point. I was like, probably I was what, 25, I think. So I wasn't too young. Like I'd been around a little bit and I, I feel like I always say like, if I, if I got signed or went for it, like when I was like, you know, maybe 18, 19, didn't go to college. I might've like, who knows? I probably would have, I don't know what would have happened, but I, my instinct is I would have, burned out or yeah. dumb, or fucked up you know um and so i remember when, when i got signed i took it seriously i took it really seriously i wasn't like gonna blow it because i had so many friends who got signed the major label deals from 95 to 98 who they make a record they get a big advance and then they would just get dropped like nothing would happen and i saw it happen so many times that I was like, there's nothing guaranteed here. You got to fucking focus and like, just think, think small, just make make music that you love, no matter what that you're going to be proud of even, uh, you know, or at least try to do that. And then, and then be ready to just grind it out. And that's where my head was. You know, I remember like getting the record deal. I used to, I used to like into, I'm driving cross country and I literally just, I, I didn't even pull out of the driveway. Like I just got in the car and put my seatbelt on, you know, and we don't, we haven't even backed out yet. And, you know, cause some people like I'm signed to Columbia and just ride <laughs> off the rails right there. You know, like yeah. I was like, I better, all right, I have this opportunity. I'm not going to fucking blow it. So. Yeah, for sure. Do you, uh, do you feel like, I guess to, uh, expand upon what you were saying as far as like, you had the opportunity to develop your chops and I don't know exactly like what your mindset was going into making the second record day. I forgot, but was there much anxiety for you after experiencing the warm welcome that you had with the first record as far as going into make making the second record? I think that 
there was an anxiety about it. Like I, I you know, the cliche is the, the sophomore slump, you know, you hear about all that stuff and it's like, I wasn't going to get bogged down with that. I knew yeah. that I had evolved. Basically I went from, you know, you know, before music for the morning after, like I wasn't, I, w- I didn't, I didn't get there by being like grinding it out on the road for years. Like it was like, I was playing around town and then I was like doing that, but I never really toured before. And I decided I just want to make a, the best record I can make and try and get signed that way. And halfway through doing that is when I got signed, you know? Um, so I, through, through promoting music for the morning after I toured for like 18 months straight and went from being an unknown to having, you know, a pretty, um, pretty decent buzz on me, you know, just from that record. And I didn't have, I, I was like, whoa, like it happened so fast. Once it came out, it was a long time for me in the making as in my, in my mind, it was years of, you know, kind of developing to be able to make a record like that. Um, and uh, having a lot of, you know, great partners in the studio, but, but then after I became more of a road artist, I feel like I've like played so many shows and had all these experiences under my belt that I didn't have before. And so my, my desire was to go in when I made day, I forgot and make like just more of a, even more of a rock and roll record. I remember just want to like, like kind of take away a lot of the, um, I remember when I made music for the morning after I was into like a little bit more electronic music and like new order and, 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 and the, actually the band electronic and, and garbage. And I liked all those elements, little ticky ticky sounds and stuff like that. And on, on <laughs> day, I forgot it was more, I think I had developed from playing so many shows live into a more muscular singer and some more rocking sound. And I just wanted to honor that. Cause that's where I was in my head, yeah. you know? And I didn't give much thought to it. Otherwise, that was just where my instinct was taking me, you know. Um, so I think that's why that record kind of has has a um, bit of a heavier sound. And of course, it was mixed by Andy Wallace, who would mix like you know um, Slayer and Jeff Buckley. And but but um, you know, I wanted I wanted a record to rock, and that's where I went, and just kind of be more straight ahead, you know. Even though there's some curveballs in there, yeah. you know, here and there, but yeah. Long Way Down is one of my favorites off that record. Yeah, me too, man. And that that makes me think of my dad. I mean, I was just like, you know, I think I even quote my father in that song. He'd always be like, you know, look out. He's like, watch out for people, for for certain type of ladies. He's like, he's like, be careful. I was like, <laughs> all right. But um, yeah, that song's that's a banger. You know, I look, I go back and listen. I remember, I remember, and it was the same with me and my brother Rick, my middle brother who wasn't in the band anymore at that point, of course. But, you know, as soon as I, you know how like, like some people say you make music or art for with someone in mind or an audience in mind. Like, I swear, man, so many times when I'm recording a song, I'm like, I just think of my brother. I'm like, cause he's some, something goes back to who turned me on to all this stuff that I'm into and all the influence pouring. And I'm just like, I can't wait to play him this song. And when we got the mix from Ken Andrews of that song, I remember being in his truck parked on Doheny Drive in Los Angeles and we just cranked it and we were like holy shit we're like this is it this is it like oh, like that yeah. scene in like uh what the hell is that movie singles you know where like where where, where Eddie and uh 
and Chris Cornell are like cranking it too loud in the car. <laughs> but like, that's what we would do. And we'd dream, we'd be like, this is, and like at that night, that night, we were sure that was going to be the single. We're like, that, this is the song. We're going to be rock stars. It's, you know, we were so excited. And then of course, something changed and Come Back Home ends up being the first single. And then, you know, I don't think Long Way Down ever became a single. And, you know, looking back, you'd be like, well, maybe that should have been a single. I don't know. But we did have fun cranking like that song and being so excited how it turned out. just cool to hear that you know just the way you're talking about it as far as i'm definitely one of those people when i hear a song it'll make me you know think of someone usually of like oh who led me down the path to get to here you know who would appreciate this thing because they kind of sent me down this way so like to know that it's like deeply rooted in the beginnings for you of like who showed you the way to the drum kit and like who allowed you to kind of like be around their friends early on and like develop taste for music that you maybe wouldn't have like encountered otherwise. Yeah. And it's still there all. So now like, like I still feel like the little kid, you know, no matter how old I get and we get that, I still feel like that little kid, like when I have a new song and I want to play it for him, it's, it doesn't change. It's crazy. For sure. Do you remember uh, what the first like big show that you got to play back in New Jersey was after being like a few years removed from leaving there for Los Angeles and experiencing some success from uh, music for the morning after? Man, it was it was fun, man. It was like I come back and it was like every single kid I knew from school showed up like it was like it was like a homecoming it's been their parents and i mean everyone was so happy and proud and i was um really taken back i remember being backstage i I don't know if it was gosh i don't know if it was roseland like every time i was coming through a lot at that point once music for my after came out um it's a mouthful to say music for the morning after. <laughs> I remember people couldn't read it. I, I purposely put it all, one, all word, one word. So it would force you, it would force you to really look at it to see what it said. Otherwise you'll forget. And I think, I think it was, uh, there was a record by maybe Sparkle Horse that did that. I think it was, a, I did it because yeah. Sparkle Horse did it. And I thought this makes you really focus on it. I also feel like that that's, that's hip before the like vowels became missing from artists names and things like that you know like i feel like it it runs along the same lines yeah i was like i just thought it looked cool or something but but um yeah going back i was going you know every i felt like every few weeks i was back in new york or new jersey and everyone would always come out and it was a blast it was so much fun and i remember that we just have crazy parties backstage and everyone would be having so much fun and and it would be like this is your life or like reunion just would be crazy cousins. And it was really fun. I remember though, in LA, like the first big show we played was opening for guided by voices. And it was before I had even put out the record. It was like the record was done and we were able to like send it to some people and who gives us a shot to open for them with my brother still in the band on drums. Oh yeah. (laughs) Guided by voices. (laughs) And we got to open for GBV at the El Rey theater. It was like, 
we were like, oh my God, oh my God. It was like the greatest thing we could ever have wished for. And uh, I remember it was a, a band called Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments. I remember that was an interesting name. Uh, it was on the bill and us and Guided by Voices. And uh, and and the band was just me, my brother on drums and, and Waz on bass. And uh, yeah, we just, I don't even know what the heck songs we played. It was like this weird in-between time before the record and before, before even a lot of those songs, I think, you know, it was like kind of early, early, early days, but it was cool. And outside of that, like early on in your career as an opening act, is there like a tour or two that stands out as being, pretty influential on how you would kind of operate as an artist moving forward? I will say, you know, when I first moved to LA, I can give you two answers. One is like, you know, both of my brothers were working in Hollywood. So they like, like I, we were around a lot of like famous people, but growing up in Jersey, you know, my dad was a dentist. My mom was like a school teacher. Like we didn't know anybody famous. And all of a sudden I'm in LA and I'm like, holy, look at, holy shit. Like, you know, there's this person, there's that person, right? These, right? You know, at parties that we see all the time. And I remember some of my heroes that I meet were so nice. And I met whether it was like, I'm gonna like throw names around, I'll pick them up off the floor right now. But like, I remember meeting John Malkovich, like fucking John, and he was so nice. And I was like, see, man, you could be a real artist and be super nice and not be a dick. Yeah. And that's the way to be. And I mean, that was the way I would have been anyway, but I, it was cool to see to see that and, and other people that I meet that I really respected and they'd be cool. And then you meet once in a while, you meet someone and they're kind of like douchey and you'd be like, all right, whatever. Maybe you had a bad night, you know, whatever. But I remember being very impressed with certain people that, you know, they don't, you feel like, you know, when you're, when you're coming up and you don't know, you're like, they don't have to be nice, even though obviously everyone, you know, should be pretty cool, but some people have demons that you don't understand and that's all right. But like that inspired me. Um, And then as far as touring as an opener, you know, sometimes you go out and tour and a band is like, they got to keep it really tight for themselves. Otherwise they're going to ride off the rails, you know? And so you don't see them that much and other bands want to hang out and party and have, I met two come to mind and these were, or, you know, I think uh, I was already probably a year into touring at this point, but like Foo Fighters, like those guys, Grohl is the best. Like he's the guy who you see. He wanted to, you know, do shots of Jaeger every night with us backstage and party with us and have a blast. And we we had so much fun. And being a young kid at that point, I could I could handle it. You know, now forget about it. I'll bring off the out. But uh, but uh, REM, I was, I was like my dream band growing up. Like I'm some touring with REM, and they they want to hang out. I'm like this is unbelievable every night. And and when you're out with REM. At that point, like the foos were big, but they weren't like what they are now, even though Grohl was Grohl. But like REM was like like royalty yeah, at that point. Absolutely. So when you go out with them after a show, you know, there's like interesting people around, you know, you're like, what's going on here? And we were doing Europe European shows and all over America and and uh just getting to hang out with your heroes and and pick their brains. And you know, I was like a more of a fan. Like I would talk to Michael and be like, you know, what's perfect circle about, dude, you know, like, he would, he would, you know, he would, he'd tell me, but they were so sweet. They were always the best. And, you know, we still keep in touch with those guys to this day, you know, and um, that was special. It's like cool stuff that you never forget. And I can't think of any bad experiences as an opener, like where a band wasn't cool. Just, just sometimes when you're on a tour, 
you know, some bands, I think like they need to kind of be really disciplined, you know, so they'll like, they'll maybe like send you some flowers and champagne yeah. to kick the tour up and say hi that first night, but then you never really see them For again, sure. you know, oh, that's kind understandable. Of like tight ship. And I get that. I get that too. Whatever you need to do to get through. Cause at some <clears> point the road, for some people, you got to like approach it like an athlete, you know, you got to be really disciplined or you're going to, you're going to get fried for sure. You know, unless you're a superhero. It seems like there's a, a handful of your records where there's uh, several different producers on that same record. And I was curious, like what you dig about that approach or if that's just been kind of circumstantial. I know you talked about with the first record, it was just a matter of maybe the, you know, the label getting on board as you had already started making the record and introducing different people that way. Yeah. I've made records in a couple different ways. There's that way where just kind of, I'll have a song in mind and I'll, and I have a friend who's like, I think might be perfect to work on that song with, you know, like early on, like, you know, there was Ken Andrews um, to do for Nancy, you know, on, on, on the first record. And, um, that started a great relationship because we, he did long way down too on day I forgot. And so he was in a band called failure, but, um, yeah, I think after I worked with him, I'd be like, Oh, I'd love to do like these three songs with Ken and then balance out what I'm doing with Walt and Brad or, uh, you know, and then if you, then you, then you have a little success and you have opportunities to work with some people that weren't really on your radar who you think might be interesting. So, yeah, there's a few of my records though that I could say I would call them the the homogenous records where there's one producer yeah. and one they record in one room during one session, you know, uh, or one one block of you know a few weeks or days, and so that would be back and forth was made completely with Mike Mogus, um, and that kind of group that we put together and kept it consistent. I think that was the first time I did that, and then. Uh, the black album around the same time, which was just like two weeks before I started working with Mogus was done by Frank black. And then, and then I didn't do it again that way until, um, until I met Jackson yeah. from day wait. And, and then we could, we caught a, a thing where we just, just started banging out songs together and having a good time just really naturally. And so caretakers uh, has that homogenous thing where it's all, you know, just us, and then on my new record that's going to come out, you know, later this year is also the same, the same way with Jackson. Yeah. With Jackson. Awesome. Yeah. That caretakers record is definitely one of my favorites and day wave is definitely some stuff I've been getting into recently. So it was cool to see that that's like where that came from. What do you, uh, what do you enjoy working with Jackson and like, what do you feel like he brings out of your, your songwriting? So Jackson is first of all just you know the greatest guy we met you know a chance at a birthday party and uh we just started talking and uh we hit it off really quick but then and he he mentioned he's he's like you should come by my studio or whatever and and uh and I was like totally yeah it was late in the night but then of course you know nothing happens and I forget about it and then I think it was like six months later where we finally got together and I should have got together sooner, but it's, everything works out the way it should, I guess. And, uh, I went there with a song that I had written and I was like, well, I'll just, well, we just hung out and talked for a bit. We talked about how much we love God by voices. We talked about other stuff that we, we love and, and about 
things we are frustrated with in the music business and how there's pressures to like do things that we don't want to do creatively and how we've always kind of kind of naturally fought against that that stuff and yeah and he was going through some stuff where he was feeling i think um uh conflicted about how he was going to promote his record and and uh and uh we were just talking through that and and then i realized i'm like wow jackson's like he's like a generation behind me kind of maybe you know like he was a little kid when when the first record came out you know and his sister turned him on to it and i'm like wow and 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 when we when we got deeper and i realized that jackson reminded me like he reminded me of things about myself and what i was into that maybe i had kind of like forgot about or moved past and he kind of reintroduced me to stuff that that i love and i thought that maybe was passe but then i kind of like revisited it and and brought it into into the the way that i was going to present a song and it felt fresh all of a sudden and new again and so yeah like i like i said like he just just reminded me a bit about who i was and it was a really good i think uh kind of uh just kind of good back and forth that we had a balanced thing that we were each giving each other yeah and and the cool thing was he could you know he was he was it was just effortless to record with him like we would just get together and and uh i'd have some ideas he would have some ideas for initially we would i think we decided we wanted i we were like maybe, well, maybe we should we try and do an ep just like five songs and he's like yeah let's do it man and so i would go over to his house and and uh we'd start would lay down some lay down like a guitar or bass drum track in the morning and then just layer it build it up just like i used to do with walt you know when we were making the first record and uh and i always that's always my favorite way to track anyway just like that building it up but like two two just the two of us keeping it simple um and see you see where we can get from there and uh we just got in a role where we just it was like a joke like we would every day we would get together we would just start and complete a new song start every single time and we're like well let's just keep we had we got the five and we're like we were and we felt like we were just hitting our stride and we were like well let's just he was down to keep going and i'm like i'll keep going and then we would get together like once a week you know and we'd break for lunch at 12 like i would go there i get there at like 10 30 in the morning 10 i was like had a little baby at the time and and uh yeah we were just like all right well let's just keep going till we make one we hate or we the one we don't like and so we just we got to record like 23 songs and some of that is 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 caretakers and some of it's gonna be on two records from now not even the next record um and we just had a flow and we still do and it's it's, it's it was um really good time really good time yeah man the production on caretakers just feels like it's uh big on a different level but it still like maintains like all that raw feel and like kind of those imperfect moments seem to like come through as well like some of that that punk rock energy i guess in some ways of like what i was talking about it still seems to all exist in there yeah yeah and when you know like that like jackson mixed it my friend Sean mastered it. Like I remember I hit a point where I'm like, I don't want to overdo 
anything. I don't want to overcook it. I don't want to work it to death and suck all the life out of it. And there was a point where I was working with a couple people where they could get two in their head and then I get in my head and we keep <laughs> fucking tweaking it. And for me, sometimes for some people that might be great way to go, you know, but I feel like with my stuff, the more kind of like raw it is and a little rough around the edges, the better. Um, and so I was really adamant. I was like, let's not overcook this shit. And I don't want anyone outside getting their mitts on it i'm like no no hot mixers <laughs> mixing this no one's no hot masters mastering this like we're just doing our thing i feels good it makes me want to listen again if because all i care about is listenability i'm like i don't care if it sounds more hi-fi or whatever to somebody else for me if i don't want to listen to it like three times in a row if i failed it's not it i lose that feeling so we had the feeling and i wasn't gonna fuck it up and and that caretakers, I'm so proud of that record. Um, I love all my records, really, but caretakers might be it's like easily like top top two for me. Yeah, of record every record I ever made. That one's up there for me as far as your records. That uh, that friends track is killer, and I don't know. It just uh, throughout your whole catalog, I feel like there's. There's never a record I get to, man, where I just like feel the need to skip a song. It like all feels like, like often just feels like a vibe, like whether I'm like paying attention to it intently and like listening in headphones or if I just have it playing in the background while I'm doing shit around the house, you know, like it's, I don't, I don't, yeah, come, come across anything where I'm like, oh, we're going to move past this, you know? All right. Well, good. Well, you must be a chill, chill cat and able to just kind of let it flow. <laughs> I was curious with that, that record that you made with Mike Mogus, um, back and forth. One of the other ones you said that, you know, was made more with just one producer, that opening track, don't want to cry. Do you feel like that was like one of the most vulnerable moves that you made at that point in your career, as far as like opening with that track? And like, did you feel like that was a risk at all? Well, it didn't writing the song was very it was the, me at my most vulnerable and that that period like back and forth and the songs on the black album that was like when I went through a, like a heavy uh time emotionally that I had never experienced before where I was um feeling things really intensely and I was battling very hard to stay afloat like in my head um, but it was a time I wouldn't trade in because it, it gave me tools to kind of carry with me, you know, through the rest of life, wherever that takes me. But but uh, those songs are like the literal songs. Like a lot of a lot of my songs, I write stream of consciousness, or I just like kind of feel the music and let it flow through me, lyric you know, the lyrics, and kind of be more create something more to um, more than anything else serve as a reflection for the listener so like they could put anything they want on it but but the songs on back and forth and the black album which were all pretty much written around the same time like 2006 7 uh those were like those were my diaries those were me writing lyrics before music and just getting stuff out and don't want to cry you know writing that stuff out felt like like uh felt vulnerable but the, once we recorded it, like I was like so proud of how it turned out 
and thought it was really beautiful that for me to decide to put that track one felt like a strength you know it felt like this is just cool well at least i thought it was cool and and uh, i want to lead with this because it's different and ultimately like looking back at these songs that you write when you're in pain you know you got you look back years later and you can see like I, I look them as as hopeful songs because it's like you can move you'll move you can move through that you know you don't you don't stay stuck in this place you think you're gonna be stuck in forever uh, and you look back and it's like it's a it's a reminder that yeah shit was hard but now you're you're good or you know yeah. you move past it and so that's I find I find it like inspiring to still sing those kind of songs. Now I know one day. Hey everybody, just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 Pub, located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall with over 200 bottles. Muscles and Fritz are on the menu. Their cheeseburger is lights out and they've always got some killer weekly specials as well. Aside from the menu items and beverages, they've got this awesome covered patio that is heated throughout the fall and winter with a bunch of big screens to watch all your favorite sports. And the best part is they have DJs playing tunes there every Tuesday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and Sundays 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So come through North 45 Pub for some tunes and some food. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, that it just felt like a, a shift in gears from you know the opening tracks prior. Like you could feel like that there was some sort of uh, you know shift. Yeah, and a lot you know that was the first record, or that record and the Black Album were both recorded with bands too. Like we put together players to like at least the basic tracks, like to track live in the studio. Cause I think at that time I had done all the layering, you know, all those type of recording where we just kind of a couple of us layer everything up and track by track. And I was kind of like, I remember hearing some about Dylan, you know, like having a band put together and coming in and just like, just, just record tracking live in the studio. And I was like, that could be fun to do to mix it up. So there was that kind of wanting to mix it up. Um, which is, I think is the sound of those records. And then a lot of times, like the record before how I start that record will kind of maybe dictate how I'll start the next record. Uh, like there's some context there. So like, that's cool. Let's see. Like, I think I forget what even came out first. It was a breakup came out before. I don't even know what the heck came out. There was like three records, like boom, boom, boom in 2009, where it was like the breakup album came out and, and back and forth came out and the black album came out and I forget which was first, but if I want to just stick to like the Columbia records, I was on three different labels at that point, <laughs> but like Nightcrawler, I think was the last, the, 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 the previous Columbia record before back and forth. And that was like, you know, that opened with vampire and 
it was a dark darker song yeah. so it was also a mellow mellow opening that kicked in don't want to cry was a more melancholy song not so dark different uh i don't know yeah i don't know if that theory even holds water but but i'll say this i just i remember thinking i thought don't want to cry was different and i was really proud of it as a songwriter and it was as honest as i can be at that moment and i love the recording so i think that's why it was track one for sure man it it comes across that way in the recording for sure so i think that energy is is definitely captured um and yeah, Nightcrawler felt like you just dug into the synth, like the synthesizer tones in a different way, like in with the darker tones and whatnot coming through on on that record. But the man is one of my favorite songs on that record. And I was trying to do some digging. And uh, who is the uh, the other vocalist on that track? That's uh, Natalie Maines from. The chicks. Well, used to, at that point, she was in a band called Dixie Chicks. Okay. Another the chicks. Uh, okay. Uh, that's Natalie Means. Yeah. And like when you were doing a track like that, is that something where she just sang those parts, or did you like did you still write all of those lyrics, or would she come in with her own pieces? Yeah, I wrote all those lyrics. I wrote that song on tour. I was backstage in North Carolina at some big outdoor amphitheater uh, opening for REM. And I remember I was waiting from for my. Sh- I think I had already played my show. Uh, no, I probably actually it's probably before before. I think it's before I played because I would have been watching Orion because I watched every night. So <laughs> I think it was before I went on. I wanted to write a song that sounded like the band. I remember I was just like into the band at that moment. I was like, oh, something has that feel, and you know, and overthink it, and all the lyrics just came. And she has perfect pitch. She's like just this crazy singer, and I just when we got in the studio, they play on a few songs on that record, but um, um, we got in the studio. There's actually a video of us somewhere, like on one of my socials of us uh, working out the the harmony and I kept messing it up. She's like, (laughs) it's clear to me, clear to me. We were like uh, trying to work that out. But um, she, um, she knew just what to do. You know, that girl, you just play her a song and she will find the harmony. And that's what she did. Yeah, for sure. And what what brought about your collaborations with Scarlett Johansson? How did that all come to be where you started making some records together? I can tell you very clearly. I knew Scarlett. I knew her at first, you know, because she knew my brothers. And she was little at that point. Um, my older brother had been her lawyer when she was since she was a little girl. And then my middle brother, I think, was managing her for a bit but not at that moment where we recorded, they were, they had broken off. But I remember first meeting Scarlett and it was at a club in New York. And I think music for the morning after had just come out. And she, as I remember it, she came up to me in the club and she says, you're Petey. And I was like, I was like, Hey, what's up? Who are you? And she's like, I'm Scarlett. Like, I know your brothers, you know? And I was like, Oh, cool. And I think she was with some kid. He looked like, he looked like he was into the strokes, but I don't even think the strokes were a thing yet. And uh, I remember he was like this kid with like, he looked like Fabrizio or someone, but it, it was probably just, I don't know who it, it was. Very well could have been, but I don't know. But yeah, she was just like, what's up? And we became buddies. And and uh, years later, I just had this crazy idea that I wanted to make. A, I think after singing with Natalie, and uh doing a bit of duetting i was like i want to i'd love to make a record with like a female 
And I remember I was really into like Serge Gainsbourg and the Bridget Bardot stuff. I thought that was so cool. Like, uh, like um, the Bonnie and Clyde and all that. And I remember thinking, you know, who, you know, this is like pre-Marvel, pre, pre-Marvel Scarlet, you know, this is like kind of like ghost world Scarlet, you know, or like, I'm like, who is a little older than ghost world? She was starting to become like known more as like, you know, a bit of a sex symbol, you know, for, for the back of a better term um, and a great actress, of course. But I was like, who is Bridget Bardot? And I was like, it's fucking Scarlett. Scarlett would be perfect for that. And I knew she could sing. I knew she'd be able to, she hadn't sung at, at nothing at that point, but I just knew that her, she was so cool and she would just have this persona if she was down for it. And luckily I caught her at a moment where she was like in between things and she actually had decided that she wanted to try singing a little bit. And so I texted her and she t- texted me right back. I was like, Hey, you want to make a record? I got this idea. And she's like, sure. And so basically me and my friend, Sonny Levine and my cousin, Max Goldblatt cooked up all the tracks. Sonny was mainly cooking them up, but I had, I'd written, I wrote all the songs, just like banged them out. And this was during that time where I was kind of losing my mind a little bit. So I was, I don't know if I was manic or what, but I was just, just kind of like, I couldn't sleep. I was just up, just working, working, working. And uh, we banged out nine songs. I said, I I just want to be nine songs, no more, no less. And we'll get the tracks ready. And then we're not going to have a lot of time with Scarlett because she's a big movie star. So we'll figure out like a day or two that she'd come in, just sing everything. And then we'll figure out what to do with it. And that's what we did. We worked up the tracks and then Scarlett came in, sang two days. This is in 2006, by the way. And uh, right away. So I would just like when I was working with Natalie, I would show, I'd say, okay, well, here's a song, check it out. And right away, she just got it really fast. I remember I was really um, impressed at how fast she got it. And um, we got her vocals down. We figured like, I, I remember we were like, well, why don't you sing the high part and I'll sing the high part and then I'll sing the low part and you sing the low part. And then we'll figure out what, how it fits together after. Cause I didn't want to take up too much of her time, you know? And, uh, and then she split and then Sonny and me and Max went to work on the, just kind of figuring out what worked together. Yeah. And uh, we had enough to make the record and then it wouldn't come out till 2009. And it went platinum in France. I always say still <laughs> one of that that song Relator is like, you know, one of my most popular things that I've ever been a part of, you know? And that was a song that I had I had done a, like a punk rock version of it, like a demo of it with Don Fleming and, and Hoboken in this little studio where I played everything and it's just like this it's probably out somewhere. So I probably relator demo if you look it up on YouTube or something. Uh but um it's much different and Sonny put a really cool stamp on the production of that record and brought some cool people in the play it's pretty exciting for you to hear someone else singing your your lyrics as well and kind of get to yeah. be in that space. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was big um, to hear like the female perspective of, of lyrics that I wrote and it would flip it for me be like, wow, I hear in a whole different way. And I think at that time, you know, I, I, uh, I was like in the middle of touring Nightcrawler. I had a little break when we recorded this thing and I 
just really wanted to, I just wanted to just do something that I felt like was like, it wasn't even part of any label. No one was asking for this record. I just wanted to make, it was really me just making a project that I was super passionate about for whatever reason. I just had this thing. I want to make a duets record and, and with no expectation of it, but I saw it, you know, like sometimes you're like reaching, you're reaching to find what you want to be creative about and you don't know what that is. And, and then there are other times where you just see something so clearly all mapped out. And this was one of those moments that just like, was like, I got, I have to do this. And after it was done, did you have any anticipation that y'all would do something again? Even if it was, you know, 10 years later that you, you know, put out the apart collection of tunes. Yeah, I didn't, you know, we had a, we had a great time. We knew we never were going to be a touring act, you know, and, and, um, what happened was the record was done probably early 2007, I think by the time Sonny mixed it. And, and I just, we were just sitting on it and we were like, well, that was fun. And then I was still making my solo music, but, uh, every once in a while, you know, like I would send the record to a friend or whatever. And people would come hit me back. Like, dude, what are you doing with that record with Scarlet? That's, that's a, that record's fun, man. You should put that out. And like, I had lost the momentum. Like I was like, that momentum I had to like get it done. Once it was done, I feel like I lost a little focus there and I wasn't like in a rush to put it out. And then, and Scarlett would talk about it too. Like she would play it for her friends or whatever. They'd be like, you guys got to put this record out. So, you know, we finally, we like got it signed at, at Rhino and Warner brothers and, and they were all excited about it. And, uh, I just had this weird instinct. Maybe it goes back to the Serge Gainsbourg, Bridget, like inspiration. But I was like, well, if we're going to launch it, we should launch it in Paris. She got a friend. They were like, okay, whatever you want. And we went to Paris and we got, you know, I think, you know, obviously Scarlet, you know, celebrity helped big time, but there was no guarantees that it would be a success. You know, it's, it's a tough market to break over there, you know, especially when you're Americans. Um, but, uh, Right. We went on TV and we sang her later in one of those shows and it just took right. Off. It was one of the easiest, like, like everything's a grind, a grind. And this one just took off. Like they were just, they're still singing it, singing it in the trees over in France. They, awesome, they love that song. <laughs> so it's really cool. It was That's fun. Sweet. And we had a lot of fun promoting it. Yeah. That, uh, movies track off the apart collection of tunes is very oh, yeah. cool. I, I dig how, uh, how experimental the production feels on that one. Yeah, that was recorded back with, with Walt Vincent, my old school friend. And uh, he um, he put a really cool stamp on that. I remember it felt so cinematic. It felt like a movie, just the, the synth on it. And uh, that was one of my favorite songs on that, on that EP, for sure. tribute being able to like crank out new ideas for as long as you have and put out the amount of material that you have to being a multi-instrumentalist and being able to like maybe approach songwriting from different instruments at times i think it helps for sure and 
you know, it's just a matter of just put me in a studio with the right person, uh, preferably a home studio. Um, so I don't like, I don't like like normal studios, you know, with the big consoles. I like that. I like just a home studio where everything's right there and we just lay it down. Yeah. You put me in with somebody who's able to just kind of bounce, help me bounce ideas and, and capture them. I'll pretty much always end up with a song. I don't know, good or bad, you know, I'll always be able to create something new. And sometimes it's like, I'll have something prepared and we'll go forward. And I always, I, I never like to go in with like super finished stuff. Like I, I like to finish a song like 80% because you got to leave room for that magic that you don't know, you know, uh, at least with me anyway, I feel like it's like some, you ends up going a slightly different way than you had it in your head and it becomes even more special to me. Um, and then there are times I go in and I just, just start from scratch with someone will start just laying down just sounds and beats and, and that will inspire this whole, the lyrics will just start pouring out in my head. Like some, like a lot of times the, the person that's recording us will leave the room for like 20 minutes and I'll just like play it over on a loop, the music. And I'll just, um, just come up with the lyrics like right there. And I'll, uh, and, and sometimes I don't know, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but it's like, I've learned to just get out of my way. Um, because it usually once if, if I, there's an instinct I have that like, I, I might not know what it is at the moment, but it feels right, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I have an instinct that it'll mean something to me if I just get it down. And then of course, like, you know, a few days later when I go back to it or like, I'm like, Oh my God, I know this came right from my unconscious. And now I know exactly what that was. Um, and that's like one of my favorite things about creating music and the songs, you know? Yeah. Is, has it also been maybe why you were, I don't know, you've, you've talked a couple of times during this conversation about like pulling out an old song that you like had demo in this way. So is it, is it something like if you took the time to put down some sort of idea, do you try to keep that open if you've never been able to like tap into it on a record and like maybe it will make sense to you later in different context? Absolutely. And sometimes I'll take very like there'll be like like long way down. I recorded I think I recorded that song over a period of six years, probably four different versions of that song. And then the the one that I finally felt nailed it was the one that made it on the day I forgot, you know, like there's that type of thing, but then there's also like, uh, uh, you know, I'll have like half a song that I, like a part that I love and, but then I just can't crack the code on what the rest of it would be. And then also I'll be in the studio coming up with something completely new, not even thinking about that other little half a song. And I'm like, wait, what if I, if I work that into this, and then I'm like, whoa, now I got two parts that I love, but I didn't even think would, you know, work together. So I, I call it like spare parts. So sometimes something could be like a, like the chorus of, or the verses of calm down like that, the all is well in my hometown. That was from like 1998. Uh, that's so cool. I had sitting around on from my, on my Roland VS, my friends Roland VS, uh, little digital recorder, uh, I had recorded, it was called Montville, New Jersey, the town it was from. And it was this really mellow song and I never did anything with it. And then all of a sudden as we're, we have like calm down developing all of a sudden I'm like need a verse. And I'm like, I hear that. I hear that. Oh, yeah. I hear that. And I just started singing those words and, the, and that's, that's became the verses. And so 
that song was like written between 1999 and 2018 you know it's crazy like so I just pulled things from different places. And I didn't do that so much in the past, but I feel like I kind of that's op I'm open more open to that now and realize that that's a cool little little trick. And a lot of lyrics that I, I wrote as a younger person, I feel like um, you know, some are terrible, but some I feel like are just just sitting there waiting. You know, like they're they're a young person's perspective on things and they're 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 just waiting to be used in some sort of way and maybe they wouldn't work in their state as they are now but you put you join that with something from my mind today and it could become something special you know imagine that that's what's helpful about getting new people in the room too and working with different producers and them hearing something maybe that you can hear in those initial ideas and whatnot yeah absolutely you know they'll, they'll take some they'll take something i remember jackson like little things like uh you know he has a great aesthetic naturally and if you hear his music you know he just he has his own sound and um he's such a great great musician and engineer but he um he i remember like i'd be i'd be stuck on like playing a like a four chord pattern you know like and he'd be like well let's let's let's, let's make it a three chord pattern and at first i'd be like ah it seems so weird to me and then we we would do it and then it would like open me up to like oh wow the change is actually cooler here and then we could go somewhere else and that makes like freshen it up and 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 become more interesting to us um little suggestions like that um and you know just having someone that you that you you trade off with really well like jd also like with the Olms, like that was a like a great co-writing experience like a, that was my first real like we're gonna write songs together uh type of experience because i was like man i I'm, i want to have a like mick and keith have a paul and paul <laughs> and, and john have you know because like, i'm so solitary as a writer typically and so you know jd and i would just like you know that was that taught me how to like, just, you know, I, I got an idea. Okay. Now I don't have an idea. Oh, he has an idea. Great. Let's hear it. Okay. Now you have an idea. Now I have an idea. And maybe just kind of just keep, we would never run out of ideas because someone would always have an idea when the other one didn't, you know, yeah, so it was, for sure. it was cool. And then it, it was fun aesthetic working with him too. So for sure, man. Well, it's, uh, it's very cool to have the, the opportunity to chat with you, dude. It's like, uh, it's, it's always exciting to talk with somebody that's been, you know, playing music for 30 years or so, or like made this their career and they still seem like very excited about it and excited about the projects that they're working on. And kind of going back to what you were saying, as far as like meeting some people that you thought were like very cool at a young age and, and realize that some of them were like really nice. It's also very cool to like, I don't know, get to talk with you and feel like you're also excited about like sharing things about your, your journey this far. And just like talking about the tunes, I feel like comes through even just having this conversation with you. Good. Well, this has been fun and great to talk to you and, and, uh, reminds me of a lot of things that I've forget about, you know, that, 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 make make me happy and and uh 
make me excited about music and stuff that I've done. And so I appreciate it. I saw, I was checking out your podcast and I saw that you had a band called Michigan. They're on dude. And they, they, I had the great privilege of being able to bring them on tour and end of 2019, right before the pandemic started. And, uh, and they're so great. They're so great. I see them doing really well and getting playing bigger and bigger shows. And and Jason's the sweetest. All those guys are the sweetest guys. And and uh I love that that you interviewed them. So that was cool to see. Yeah, man. Jason was great and he's such a great songwriter. And I got I just got to see them in Portland. They were here like a few weeks ago with like Manchester Orchestra, and that was such a killer show. So that's rad that you, uh, you know about Michigander and took them out for a bit. That's, that's super rad. Um, I want to play the episode out with Elizabeth Taylor. It's your newest jam. Uh, and, uh, I know you said that this was another, one of the songs that you're working with, uh, with Jackson. Is that, yeah. that's from the batch of tunes that'll come out later this summer. Yeah. It's on the whole record's called Hawaii, like the Island chain. And, uh, but it's not Hawaiian music by any means. It's, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it should, it should uh, be. Yeah, I don't have the date set, but I'm thinking it's gonna be out probably late spring. Awesome, dude. Yeah, I love this song. is is super great. Definitely uh, something to to get excited about for the rest of the tunes, especially knowing that uh, you made that whole Caretakers record with Jackson, and you guys are just working on more music together so uh, like i said that that was one of my my favorite records out of your uh your collection of tunes so i'm pumped for this new one awesome man yeah we were just so excited like to get back together after the lockdowns and we we started recording again just because we kept we felt like we got stunted where when when the pandemic hit and we couldn't couldn't keep recording so when we got back together we just all these new songs came i thought we were gonna like just finish the songs that like i do a couple more songs and have a, another record ready to go and then all these brand new songs came that we were excited about so that's what the next record is and so hell yeah man well thank you again pete for just giving me so much of your time and being generous in that way it's uh like i said super super fucking cool to get to talk with you i love your your songwriting and your lyrics and the music that you've uh put out over the years is is all really great all right brother well great to talk to you thanks for having me absolutely we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program it means absolutely nothing you can deliver it however you would like to it means nothing it's just the way my grandfather says the news program he always says program and it's program just, yeah it's just a goofy way for us to end the show so if we can get the uh the pete yorn it's a program we can properly sail this thing out man it's a program he nailed it everybody that's pete yorn i'll put all the uh links in the episode notes so you can keep up with pete and uh the new music he's putting out and uh there's so much if you're if you're new to the pete yorn music there's so much to go back and dig into and we're gonna play this episode out with uh that newest pete yorn single elizabeth taylor that's the jelly jams and we will catch you on the flip side portland los angeles wherever you are listening from cool dude that was so much fun thank you again my pleasure man all the best people i'll see you down the road all right man take care all right take care man
Hey, just want to give a big shout out to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to DistroKid for their support of this thing. And make sure you go into the episode notes and find that DistroKid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership with DistroKid, making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you. So make sure you take advantage of that. And the link is also in uh, the link in my Instagram bio on the link tree. So you can find it there as well. Big thanks to DistroKid. Stay up, stay tuned.